pastor here at Midtown. It's so good to see so many old and new faces with us today. Um, I have the privilege of getting to share the word with you all today and bring us back to our Sermon on the Mount series. So um, before we dive too quickly into it, I'm going to give us a recap of where we left off prior to the holidays. So prior to the holidays, we're in the book of Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Matthew, who was called from his position as a Roman tax collector to come and follow Jesus. The book of Matthew was primarily written to a Christian Jewish audience, meaning Jews who had begun to follow the way of Christ. And, uh, sorry, and he began to teach them what author David Turner calls Jesus traditions. And these Jesus traditions are important values of Jesus as lived out in his teachings and in his life. And we see these just Jesus traditions on full display in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes the time to correct some practices and beliefs in the crowd. And as we return to the Sermon on the Mount, there are three things that I want us to remember about the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. Stanley Hauerwas describes the Sermon on the Mount in this way. He says, Jesus's life is but a commentary on the sermon, and the sermon is the exemplification of his life. Second, the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and allegiance to him looks like. It's a vision for kingdom life. Third, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice of imagination. So we left off in November with the six antitheses, or you have heard it said, but I say to you statements found in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. And these various statements each address a misunderstanding of righteousness and the life that Jesus is calling us to. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is helping the audience understand that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that the way of the Pharisees is not the way of Jesus. And we see Jesus to continue addressing this issue of righteousness in chapter 6 by tackling some more specific common practices of the time. Today, he specifically is addressing the differentiation between religious masquerades and genuine spirituality. It can oftentimes be hard to tell the difference between a masquerade and genuineness. We see it in all aspects of life. We see it for sure in religion, but we also see it in our day-to-day moments and habits. We put on a mask, we make everybody believe this perception of us, but if we're being really honest and genuine, we're the exact opposite. Anybody ever feel that before, been that way before, experienced that? Well, you're not alone. Um, According to a Barna Group study in 2017, 84% of millennials have given less than $50 to charity, even though it's on their top priorities in life. Their actions and their habits don't match up. Furthermore, when we look at corporations and organizations, the National Philanthropic Trust, along with many of their contemporaries, tend to give more when the stock markets are doing well meaning that they wait for financial security before they're generous. 
And if corporations do this, how much more am I to believe that we as individuals do this? This kind of generosity is enacted, that's enacted by both individuals and corporations is problematic. Oftentimes when we think of giving towards an organization or an act of justice, we think of it as we've done our job. We can give money and we can stop there. We don't desire to put a face to the name. We don't desire to listen and love the person experiencing injustice. We say, I've given my money, my job is done. Now don't mishear me here, financial support is important. It is, um, but it's only one aspect of justice. It's only one aspect of participating in the gospel. And oftentimes, this type of participation is seen as good branding or virtue signaling, signaling, meaning that we're doing it in order for someone to see us as good. They see our good actions, and that's all we're doing it for. And Jesus has a lot to say in today's passage about that type of performative action, that type of performative giving to prove one's righteousness. Sermon on the Mount that we're in, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is known as the passage on giving to the needy or Jesus on almsgiving. And before we dive too further into the text today, I do want to just spend a little bit of time talking about the Old Testament context of almsgiving or charity as we would know it today. Those listening to Jesus at the time would have understood these Old Testament passages and contextualized what Jesus was saying to the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible. So similarly, we have to practice some imagination and put ourselves in that context. So almsgiving is an expression of compassion in the presence of God. And it had twofold de uh, development in the Old Testament. The first we see in the Law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, we see that compassion is a feeling cherished and frequently associated with acts of giving to the needy or the foreigner. And then later in the Old Testament, we see that the prophets consider almsgiving a right which the needy has to claim from us. They can justly claim our giving. And sometime between when the Old Testament writings were complete and when the New Testament writings had begun, it's called the intertestamental period, in that time, these two Old Testament ideas on almsgiving had begun to morph. And they became this idea that righteousness was secured through almsgiving, meaning that righteous acts annulled their sin and it, and it gave them favor before God that anything they asked, he would do. And this was a distortion of the Old Testament scriptures and their intent of almsgiving. And it's this distorted idea of righteousness that Jesus is addressing today, the idea that righteousness and almsgiving are synonymous. The question is not whether almsgiving or charity is a good, righteous act. The question is, what is our motive behind our almsgiving? What's our motive behind making it righteous or unrighteous in the sight of God? God cares about our motive today. And I venture to say that while Jesus is addressing specifically giving in this passage, his teaching extends much beyond just giving. He's passing judgment on any act done as a performance or to demonstrate and gain righteousness. As Jesus followers, we must be motivated by trusting God rather than trust in ourselves or trust in other people's approval. So with that context of Jesus' first century audience, let's take a little further look at today's text. Starting in verse 1, it says, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now you may be saying, doesn't that contradict what we just read in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16? It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that when they see your good works, they can give glory to your Father in heaven. Seems a little contradictory. Jesus is telling us to be salt and light. He's telling us to be a city on a hill for all to see. Doesn't seem too hidden. But the important thing to note in verse 1 is that it says, in order to be seen by them. The caution from Jesus is against the why behind the action and who we're trying to show in our actions. Are we showing ourselves or are we showing God? So how can this visible and invisible aspect of discipleship be combined? How can we balance practicing, not in order to be seen, but so we can be a light that others can see our good works and give glory to God? A few things I want to address with this is, first, let me say, your fruit is going to be visible. It's unavoidable. In fact, Matthew goes on to say in chapter 7, we'll be known by our fruit. What Jesus is condemning here is the visibility being your end, your whole purpose in your actions. It's not, he's not condemning doing a public action out of love of neighbor and glory to God. Second, I pose to you that visibility should be hidden from yourself and not from others. Meaning that, you know, when you stop and talk to somebody on the street and you provide them something, that's, that's pretty unavoidably visible. They're going to see that. But when you give to the needy, you're doing it out of Jesus compelling you towards his child in need. And with that compelling you, you're focused on Jesus. You're focused on your neighbor. You're not focused on, hey, look at everybody watching me do this. You're not focused on the fact that it's public. Let's not fall into the trap thinking that right and wrong actions are parallel with private and public actions. It's not that a private action is right and a public action is wrong. God cares about the motive behind the private or the public action. I love how author Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it. He says, the genuine work of love is always hidden. Meaning that when you're acting out of genuine love of neighbor and not to be seen, you're hidden from yourself and from your desires, but not from your neighbor. And I do have a quick side note on this challenge on social media. It's so easy to use social media, and it's a great tool when we're thinking about acts of justice. It's a great tool for awareness, education, recruiting aid, but it can also be a really great platform to say, look at me. It's a really great way to show how educated you are, how aware you are, how compassionate and good you are. So I challenge us when we're posting on social media to just be cautious of our motive. Be creative. Find other outlets to be able to recruit. Have those conversations face-to-face -face with some people. Be bold and bring that to the dinner table. Make sure you're not posting to show your own righteousness. And finally, we recognize that if we know our righteousness, then we create our own reward instead of receiving God's. If we live hidden, 
God will make visible what is needed for his glory. So when we're focused on loving our neighbor instead of those who are seeing us, we're living out Jesus' command to live hidden. The question is, do we trust God enough to live hidden? I love at the end of verse 1, it says, For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying I don't like that we don't get a reward. But I like that it says your Father. It's not saying sovereign God or just ruler. He's saying Father. He is a just God. He is a sovereign God. But he is also Father. Did you know that Father is used 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount to emphasize relationship? And this idea of God as Father is a foreign idea for the Pharisees' legalistic, performance-based righteousness. We later see in Matthew 7 and in Luke 11, Jesus teaching that those who seek the Lord will find him. And he uses the analogy of father and son there as well, saying, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We serve a good God who is a good father. Matthew is emphasizing here that if we're living for the adoration of others, we're missing the heart of the father. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, that the, like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now the Greek word for give to the needy, eleumosune, say that ten times fast, um, may also be translated to perform an act of mercy, signifying compassion as exercised towards the poor. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament significance of almsgiving, where the cherished feeling of compassion is. But it's important to note that the act of giving or almsgiving is not the same as the Old Testament required 10% tithe. It's above and beyond that. But even though it's not the required 10% tithe, there's still so much significant time and instruction given in both the Old Testament and the New Testament on almsgiving. And by Jesus' instruction on it on the Sermon on the Mount, we can infer that it's something that Jesus' followers should be participating in regularly. Notice he didn't say if you give, but he said when you give. It's an instruction of generosity beyond your tithe to take care of the foreigner, the widow, the oppressed, and the poor. It's beyond, beyond that assumption of giving to the needy. Jesus is more so emphasizing the manner in which they give. Without trumpets, as the hypocrites do, he instructs. Specifically contrasting the actions of the Pharisees with those that, of his followers that he's calling us to do. When we see a little bit of shade there towards the Pharisees, just a little bit, the hypocrites. And it's so easy to dog on the Pharisees. It's so easy to look at these passages and be like, man, they got us so wrong. <laughs> Glad I'm not like that. But how often do we find ourselves actually identifying with the Pharisees? We often find ourselves in the same positions. And if we're being truthful, we've all been guilty of hypocrisy in our lives. We've all been guilty of our motives and our actions not being aligned. Doing something just to show people to give them a certain perception of who we are. Maybe it's to 
fit ourselves into what you think a Christian should be, what a pastor should be, and you're doing these actions just to put on a show. Some of you maybe have moments in mind where you've done that. Maybe some of you have moments in mind when you've been the receiving end of hypocrisy, and it's caused you a lot of pain, a lot of mistrust. And I want to say Jesus can heal that. He can heal that. Jesus is asking us not to do that to ourselves or to others. He's asking us to walk in honesty and obedience to him. And I love this quote from scholar Stuart K. Weber. He says, truthfulness breeds freedom into the spirit. Hypocrisy is a malignancy of the soul. Hypocrisy can't be present in our lives if we're going to live in the freedom that Jesus is giving us and asking us to share with others. It can't be present. And let me clarify here. The passage is talking about hypocrisy with intentional deception. He's not talking about being human. We're all human. We're all fallible. We all struggle with our motives and our actions aligning sometimes. What he's passing judgment here on is the people who don't even care to try. They're not striving for the truth. They're not striving to have their actions and their motives line up. His judgment are on those who intentionally perform to be recognized as righteous. The verse goes on to say that they're doing these acts, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they will have received their reward. The Greek word doxazo, translated praise here, can be translated to render glory to someone. The concern in this verse is that we're in competition with God for his glory. We're rendering ourselves the glory instead of God. And at the time, there was significant praise and adoration given to those who would perform an act of mercy. And knowing that, it's really easy to see how people could fall into that temptation. If you know you're going to get a lot of praise, it's easy to do an action out of performance rather than obedience to God or love of neighbor. And Jesus is confronting that performance, saying that if you're going to perform for men and get their praise, that's all you're going to get. You have received your reward. How disappointing to be living for the glory of the moment instead of the betterment of our neighbor and love of God. How disappointing. So far, Jesus has addressed our desire to be seen and our desire to be praised. And he says he cares about our motive. And if we're living for the adoration of others, we're missing the heart of our Father. He goes on to say in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This verse is always a little strange to me. I don't really know how I can hide my left hand from my right Um, But what Jesus is trying to get at here is that visibility versus hiddenness thing again. Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Obedience, love, and following Jesus are spontaneous, not premeditated. Obedience and love should be our motive. And when we meditate on our actions, and we often find ourselves thinking about what other people are going to say or see, And this can be a twofold. Sometimes that means that people are going to see you, and that stops you from acting because you don't want people to see. It stops you from obeying. 
And other times we particularly act so we can be seen. And it's when we act to be seen that we're reducing the person that we're serving to be a prop instead of a child of God. Part of the instruction to live hidden is to preserve the dignity and empower our neighbor that we're serving. We're not using them to be a prop for our glory. We're loving our neighbor. And at Midtown, we believe that our habits do shape our hearts, meaning that we recognize that change doesn't happen overnight, and sometimes we have to start practicing things for our hearts to actually follow along. And what Jesus is addressing here isn't building habits so we can have more of God's heart. He's addressing the premeditation in an action to act in opposition of him, meaning we're thinking about what we're doing, and what we're doing is to gain glory for ourselves, not glory for God. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't plan for visibility and praise. Now, I'm not saying don't prepare. I actually think we should prepare. Um, We can prepare by building habits. We can prepare our hearts and our finances to follow God's heart. We can build habits of scripture reading, silence and prayer, so that God can shape our hearts more after his. We can build habits in our finances. We can build into the budget what we can afford to be able to be generous to those we encounter in need. Prepare ahead so that way in the spontaneous moment that Jesus compels you to act, you can be generous. You are prepared to be generous. Final verse today, and if the worship team would join me back up here. Final verse says this, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's that secrecy again. The invisible righteous works. Again, we're confronted with how can our visible and invisible aspects of discipleship be combined? How do we do both? And the first thing I would say to that is we have to recognize that it's only through Christ, his death, and the salvation that we find in it that we're able to reconcile the visible and the invisible. Galatians 2 verse 20 puts it this way. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus didn't give us the instruction to live righteously without giving us the help to obey. And as followers of Christ, we're new creations. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We have the Holy Spirit to help us and to guide us in our struggle with our motives and our actions aligning. The second way that we combine the visible and the invisible is that we are consistently checking our motive. It's easy to fall into patterns. It's easy to to not notice. But if we're intentionally building habits, if we're consistently checking our motives, then maybe we can combine the visible and invisible. We can't rely on our own strength, our own understanding and power to meet the needs of our neighbors. If I relied on my own strength and my own wisdom, I would fail every time, every time. I would think I was giving good advice, but let's face it, it's not wise, it's not God's wisdom. 
It's just sounding good. It's just making me look good. But if I wait on God, so much more can be done. If I listen to him compelling me to stop when I pass someone on the street, instead of listening to the schedule I need to keep or the fear of who's going to see me or what conversation we might have, if I stop and I listen to him, he can use that encounter to encourage and bring dignity and empower my neighbor. What an opportunity to give God glory, to love my neighbor. If I pause to ask the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom before I ask in a conversation, before I start to spew out whatever I'm gonna say, if I stop, I could give, instead of giving earthly wisdom, advice, God can speak heavenly wisdom into that situation. So if we're living for the adoration of others, we're missing the heart of the Father. Our motive has to be beyond ourselves. It has to be beyond our glorification. It has to be about glory to God and love of neighbor. Third, we have to remember that there is so much freedom found in obedience to God. We often don't think that obedience means freedom. We think rules. But there's so much freedom in obedience to God. And some of us in this room need to be reminded that church isn't about outdoing one another in good acts. It's not about a competition. It's not a performance. The church is a community that believes through Jesus that there is healing, there is wholeness, and that there is freedom. It's a community that recognizes that we are all sinners. We are all striving for a closer relationship with our Father. So we don't have to outperform one another. We just have to come as we are. Imperfect, impatient, broken, and bruised. We're all ready to love and help each other to the feet of our Savior. That's what we do as a church. So do we trust him to take care of us, even if we live hidden? Do we trust him to provide? Do we trust God to see us, even if no one else does? Jesus is asking us to take off the masks, stop being what people say a good Christian should be, start living in the freedom of honest obedience to him. He cares about our motive, not our performance. And as Jesus followers, we must be motivated by trust in God rather than trust in ourselves or others' approval. We have to trust that he sees us, even if we live hidden. So how do we practice this? How do we practice this? We always like to end with a spiritual practice, some practical way that we can start living out our scriptures. And today my challenge is twofold. First, let's stop performing. Let's just stop. It's exhausting and it's unnecessary. Let's trust God to see us. Let's trust him to provide and let's trust him to define righteousness for us instead of letting other people do that. Second, instead, let's prepare our hearts so that in the spontaneous moment that Jesus stirs us, we're ready to be generous to those in need. Spoke on it a little bit earlier. We can't change our own hearts and our own power. But what we can do is we can build habits 
that make our hearts towards Christ. Habits of intentional time and scripture and silence and prayer, surrendering our hearts and our lives to God, saying, Lord, have your will. Thy will be done. Specifically, I challenge you to read Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It's a prayer of surrender, and it's up on the screens, and I'm going to read it to you guys. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. May God search our hearts and change them. May we be people who are living in honest obedience to our Father. Join a church gathering. Check out our website at midtownkc.church.